Well, this morning I'm going to continue on with the uh, subject of anger I started two weeks ago. And in some ways very appropriate because how do we deal with tragedies? There's an anger and a proper anger that should be developed in us. I'll mention that in a moment. But we need to deal with anger properly. And that's what I want to do today. When I uh, started studying for this sermon a couple weeks ago, I didn't realize how much material there actually is on anger, nor how many Hebrew synonyms there are. And uh, so two weeks ago, it was kind of mostly a, a word study, trying to just understand the, the, the depth and breadth of what anger is, how it ends up being expressed. Uh, anger... Anger is a word that describes a very wide range of feelings um, from a strong displeasure ranging from a vexation, like an irritation, to a burning, consuming wrath. Uh, and that is reflected in all these different synonyms. We actually have a lot of synonyms in English as well for it. But since anger is an emotion, it in itself um, is neither good nor evil. The moral quality of anger is going to be determined by its cause and the response to it. The anger of God is always righteous. Man's anger may be righteous when it reflects godliness. However, man's anger rarely reflects true godliness. It's usually mixed with selfishness and sin, and so it's usually unrighteous. And that's why there always has to be a great caution James 1, 19 and 20 warns us about our anger and dealing with it, even if it is, uh, has a, a righteous motivation. This you know, my beloved brethren, be, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And our purpose as Christians, we want to achieve the righteousness of God, so we need to be very careful with the anger that uh, comes upon us. Now, I want to quickly go over some of the words I used last uh, couple weeks ago, but it's going to be very quick. I just want you to get an idea of the breadth of what anger is. We often just use the one term, and what do we really mean by that? There's a wide range, and it's something that escalates. The Hebrew word, the most common one for anger is the word op, and it refers to the physical nose, the nostrils, uh, and the face. And it was used metaphorically for anger because as people get angry, their breathing pattern changes and a lot of times their nostrils will flare. You can kind of get a sense of, I think we're getting this guy upset. You can see it on his face. And so this became a metaphor for anger. And it's the most common Hebrew word for it. Uh, The focus of the word tends to be more on the emotion that's developing rather than any action that's taken place on it. It's a term used for both God and man. Uh, Zeoth also emphasize the emotional state, but now we're getting a little stronger. And here it's metaphorically used for the storm within somebody. There's a storm raging in the heart, and that can result in a troubled appearance, uh, ranging from detection uh, to rage. But it's starting to show up. There's something going on inside. Uh, A storm in the heart, which can easily result in foolishness, which we've talked a lot about in our study of uh, Proverbs. Zayam, the next term, is used both for internal and external elements of anger, and it refers to experience or expressing an intense anger, usually in denunciation or in scolding. So now it's being expressed. It's getting outward at this point. It's uh, more intense, um, but its expression seems to be limited more to how you look, your countenance, and a, a verbal expression, an indignation you might be speaking, uh, although the actions that follow it can lead you to the next word. Uh, Regaz is an external expression of anger. Its primary meaning is to shake or quake, and so it includes the trembling that might come when someone's really angry or when they have fear. So you can see it starts escalating, and and it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's uh, translated as rages in Proverbs 29.29. Ebar is an external expression of anger. Its primary meaning means to pass over or by or through. It's used metaphorically of God and man of an anger that has welled up and is now overflowing as it would uh, like the banks of a river. It's overflowing. It's spilling out. And so it's a term that places emphasis on the action that is resulting from the anger. It's overwhelming now. Chaos is a a description of the consequence of anger. It's actually used for a, a twig or a stem of a 
trigger something that's broken or splintered. So its consequence, its use of God and of man, and variously translated as anger, furious, wrathling, enraged. Anger is dangerous because it destroys relationships. It splinters them. It breaks them apart. So you can see there's this, this escalation going on of the anger having more and more terrible consequences. And then there was a, a whole bunch of Hebrew words that express anger in terms of heat in some form, fire, or the consequences of fire. And like the words already expressed, there's this escalation that keeps going up. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, chaos is the first word in this group. It means to provoke the heart to a heated condition, which in turn leads to specific action. It's translated as vex, agitate, stir up. It's even translated as grief. Now, this level of anger can be calmed relatively easily. But as the provoking continues it becomes more and more difficult to calm it down. The anger is rising. It's escalating to the next level, which would be uh, hera. And this word is actually for kindling a fire. There's a, you're a storm in your heart. Well, now there's a fire burning in there. Um, it's used in reference to both the source that causes the anger and then also the object against which this anger is going to be expressed. A fire has been kindled. The next word, the noun form of this word, uh, hera, is a fierce anger, a very appropriate description because it's, it's a displeasure, which is really what anger is, a displeasure at what's going on, that has now gotten so extreme, you can feel it inside and it's burning. And we've all experienced that at some point. That's the expression, an emotional fire burning within. It escalates up more. Related turn, uh, hema, the most serious type of anger experienced by men. It's an emotional heat of anger that is hot. It's a hot displeasure, uh, hot indignation, rage, fury, wrath. This level of anger is very difficult to quench. It is going to pour itself out its wrath. That's where that other term of it overflowing now comes in. It is built up. It's a fire burning. It's spilling over. An execution of justice against its cause, could appease it. But generally, it's a wrath, it's going to spill out. A related word, heron, is the strongest word for anger in the Old Testament. It is only used of God. It's used metaphorically in reference to an extreme anger of wrath that is burning. It's often joined with the first word we looked at, op, and together it's burning anger, fierce anger, fierce wrath. This is the attribute that God... Uh, had Moses warned the people about. Do not forsake him. Do not turn back to idolatry. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24, because you, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now fortunately, the Lord's mercy and long-suffering temper this in the present time. If it didn't, we'd all be destroyed immediately. But his other attributes balance God out so that it's always a proper burning anger. And it's not being unleashed, but we know from what Scripture says, it's going to be unleashed at some point in time in the future. His burning, consuming wrath poured out on the wicked. Now, the final word I want to briefly mention is Esan, and it describes fire by the results of it. It's the word for smoke, rising. You don't have to see the physical flames of fire to know there's fire. You can see the smoke, right? And that's the way this word is used. You see the consequences of what happens when anger has expressed itself. And that becomes the metaphor for anger itself. Now, these brief word descriptions indicate that anger is multifaceted and that it escalates from an irritation, a vexation, all the way up to the levels of ire and rage and fury and then wrath, which is the strongest term that we have in English. It starts with something that causes an irritation in you. You're a little vexed. You're bothered. You're provoked further. An internal flame is kindled. And that may or may not be noticeable outwardly. Uh, maybe your facial expression, maybe your nostrils do flare, your breathing pattern changes a little bit, and people kind of get the idea, I think they're getting upset. It's escalating. More provocation. At this point, 
you can recognize, I think they are upset. The fire is growing. It's now starting to burn, and it's going to start expressing itself somehow outwardly. There will be a change in how your body stance is. It is going to show up in your countenance and your facial features. Your words are going to change. Your tone of voice is going to change. They're sharp. They're biting. We now say the person is angry. As the emotional displeasure continues, it escalates farther. Ire, rage, fury, wrath. Burning and it's not going to be quenched. Now the ability of a person to have self-control can either mask this or they can exaggerate it far above what the actual level of anger is. For example, a hothead can explode into rage over something trivial and then just as quickly calm down. So you're not really sure how angry they really are. They just blow up and calm down. You usually want to stay away from those people. (laughs) You don't like to play with hand grenades, and that's kind of what they are. But a person who is cool maintains their self-control. You don't really know what's going on with them. They could be inwardly seething with rage, plotting exactly how they're going to take revenge on you and make your life really miserable, and they're very kind and friendly. They can smile at you. <laughs> uh, but the anger is there. And it's deep. It is burning. I need to point this out because the outward expression of someone who's angry may not really tell you what's really going on inside. It's not uncommon that the one who remains calm is actually as sinful or more sinful than the one who's become agitated and demonstrating it outwardly. They are just as angry, maybe be more angry, but they know how to keep that hidden. In fact, their sin could be greater because they are purposely using their ability of self-control to agitate the one who's already starting to demonstrate outwardly that they're angry. And then they accuse the other person, you're in sin because, look, you're, you're angry and I'm not. Oh, Really? Yeah, you're angry too. You're just dealing with it a little differently. But here we go back to something I said at the beginning. You see, anger itself is an emotion. It is neither good nor evil itself. Its moral character is determined by the cause of the anger and then the consequences, the expression of it, whether it's a godly expression or not. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 admonishes us. It says, be angry. Actually, it's in the command voice. There are things to be angry about. Be angry and yet do not sin. The emotion you can have, but what are you doing with it and why are you angry? Paul goes on there. He says, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Deal with whatever's causing this motion quickly. Don't let it get into something that's going to fester and burn and build and or you are going to end up in doing something that's sinful. Now, there are righteous causes of anger. And anger is righteous when it's an emotional response that reflects God's perspective. Okay, do you understand that? Anger is righteous. It's an appropriate emotion to have when that emotion is reflective of God's perspective on everything. And it will continue to be righteous if the actions taken as a result of that emotion are done in righteousness. They're reflective of God and his commands. I already pointed out last the last sermon that God's anger is always righteous. And it is always at the appropriate level of response. And that is because all of God's attributes work in harmony, perfect harmony with one another. His holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his justice, they're all in harmony with his other attributes, love and patience and uh, long-suffering and mercy and grace. And we're very grateful for that, aren't we? We're glad that our God is long-suffering and merciful, not just holy and just, that they both work together. And he found a way to demonstrate a long-suffering mercy that can even extend to grace. Otherwise, we would be doomed, wouldn't we? For us, though, as humans, this is difficult because it's very rare that our emotional response to situations, the actions we take, are both the results of righteousness. And that's why the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
It's so, so often mixed with other things. Because God has an infinite passion towards the object of his love, there is a corresponding holy and righteous jealousy. And I pointed out two weeks ago that this jealousy is not this sense of envy. That's usually how we use jealousy, a synonym for envy. It is a fierce protection of one's rights and possessions. It's something that's proper. God's anger is generated out of his jealousy to protect his holy nature and his interests. His displeasure is against anyone or anything, and it's going to vary corresponding to that level that a person or or something has profaned, tried to block, rejected him, or his divine order. There's a proper jealousy here. Now, we understand that. There is a jealous anger that we have, and it's a proper jealous anger, but about those things that actually belong to us, that are proper. A husband and wife are to be jealous for each other. They should have a fierce protection for one another. We should have a fierce protection for our children. Anybody in law enforcement knows it's very dangerous to get between a husband and wife. Right? It's dangerous to get between a husband and wife in a domestic dispute, isn't it? That's dangerous. Why? Because there should be a jealousy between that. We sometimes refer to a mother you've gotten mad as mama bear. There's a reason for that. She's going to be jealous in the sense of fierce protection for her offspring. And you better watch out. But it's a right thing. Proverbs 6, 34 and 35 warn a man that he would go after his neighbor's wife. It says this, For jealousy enrages a man, and it's one of these very strong hema, words of consuming, burning wrath, He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied till you give him any gifts. You can't buy him off. There's a proper jealousy here. This fierce protection, again, for children is stronger. Now, multiply that by infinity, and you have some idea of the holy nature of God's jealousy. His burning anger that arises from it for protection of his own holiness, his own name, his own honor and glory and all that belongs to him. The actions taken as a result of God's anger, though, are always carried out in perfect justice. Again, because it's tempered by his other attributes, his long-suffering, his mercy, his grace. And again, that's the only reason we continue to exist. It's the reason Jesus had to become a man, live a sinless life, and be the substitute payment for that sin because God's wrath was poured out on him instead of us. That's the substitution. He has absorbed all of that in our place. God's eternal law is satisfied. His holiness is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. In fact, God is the just and the justifier so that we can be redeemed, forgiven our sins, and adopted into his family. Without that, his wrath is upon us and abides upon us. But Jesus has absorbed that wrath so we can be forgiven. Now, there are many things which we should be angry about. Here we're talking about righteous anger again. Anything that angers God should also be a cause for the righteous to be angry. We should be angry when others worship anything other than the Lord God, our Creator. We should be angry when God's holy name is profaned. We should be angry when children are dishonoring to their parents. We should be angry when murder, adultery, thefts occur. We should be angry about what happened in Newtown. We should be angry at what has happened to our brothers and sisters around the world of their severe persecution, as in Sudan, which has been going on for decades. We should be angry when people lie, and especially when it's done to destroy somebody else's reputation. It should make us angry. We should be angry at the covetousness of our society. We should be angry at sin and all of its consequences on us and those we love. The lack of that anger, the fact that, that often that anger is not present within us, is indication of our continuing lack of righteousness. Why aren't we angry? 
Our society not only practices these things, it depicts them as sources of entertainment in the movies and in television, books and music and magazines, all of which Christians readily partake. They get in there involved with it just like everybody else. I plan in the future to talk about this subject, the Christian entertainment choice in the future, but for the present, I, j- I just want to prod you somewhat to start thinking seriously about this issue. Why aren't you angry? Can you honestly enjoy something in which the Lord's name is blasphemed? It should cause anger in you, a displeasure. It's going to vary in level, but there should be a, a sense of great displeasure when our God is, is blasphemed. Should you laugh at a sitcom in which the children treat their father as an imbecile? The entertainment and a murder of mystery is supposed to be seeing the perpetrator brought to justice. He's caught. Justice is prevailing. But what do you do when the murderer is portrayed as a hero? What do you do with slasher films? Is there anything redeeming in those? Positive portrayals of adultery, fornication, anything pornographic should make you absolutely indignant, not titillated. I I think you get the idea here. There's a seriousness involved in this. What we find entertaining reveals actually our levels of unrighteousness. Why aren't we angry? Now, perhaps someone might object, say, well... (laughs) I was going to be angry about all the sinful things that happen around me. I mean, I'd, I'd be angry all the time. Isn't that true of God? Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation every day. Second Peter 2, verses 6 and 7, describes Lot. He says he's a righteous man, and he dwelt among an ungodly people, And he was seeing and hearing all their unlawful deeds constantly. And so it says his soul was troubled by it every day. I often feel a lot like Lot. What I see going on around me, what I hear going on around me in an ungodly society, it vexes my spirit. It troubles my soul. It makes me sober and somber. But that doesn't mean that anger controls me or that it's my only emotion. This is a great thing about being humans. We have all sorts of emotions. Sometimes they're conflicting because they're going on all at the same time. These things should trouble me. They should vex me. I should be angry about them. But at the same time, I find so much to be joyful about. There is so much to rejoice about in the midst of this troubled world. In the midst of tragedies like they happen in Newtown or what's going on in our persecuted brothers and Christians, uh, sisters around the world, there is much to rejoice about. And the, the greatest thing, of course, is our God. He is gracious in the midst of all of this. In so many ways. You want to pick on the easy things, you can pick on, he provides for us. Any of you lacking? Man, I, I'm not lacking. It's coming on pretty good. My bumper is really bouncy here. That's what Elias used to call it as it gets bigger. It's a pulpit bumper. <laughs> God is gracious. I, <laughs> any of you lack for heat this morning in your home? You didn't even have to get up to turn it on. You had a thermostat. did it automatically. Whew, it's just nice. You got in the shower and it was warm. You didn't want to get out. It's so nice in here. We're not lacking. You can start there, but... You know, that's minuscule compared to this fact. Our God has redeemed sinners. He's redeemed us. Look what he did for us in Jesus Christ. And he is in the business of transforming us who are sinners into the image of his son. That is a whole lot to be rejoicing about, isn't it? I should be ecstatic about that. The fact that even the troubles and trials that come in my life, God says he's using those things to make me more what I'm supposed to be. I'm a different person. I have a hope that transcends any troubles in the present 
And as a Christian, no, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I will be. And neither are you. You're not what you want to be. And you are not what you will be in the future. But praise God, you're not what you were. He's changed you. And so while there is many things in this life that should vex us, it should make us angry, should make us livid. At the same time, anger doesn't control us because there is a bigger picture. Our God is busy redeeming people. He allows things, even like the tragedy of Newtown, really for one basic reason. Our God is long-suffering. He is patiently enduring our sin. Now, as you become more righteous, as you grow in Christ, then there is going to be more proper anger generated by the sin both within you. That should make you angry. You look in the mirror and you know you're not doing what you're doing. There should be some displeasure there. So the sin within and without was taking place. You're going to become more angry. But what do you do with that anger? What is the righteous actions that's supposed to take place in response to to sin. Now, the emotional reaction may be righteous, but because our motives are often, usually mixed, our own sin, our own selfishness gets involved in this, then our reactions, our responses tend to be unrighteous. And that's why there are so many verses that tell us to be very careful here and slow down. Again, James 1.19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger. Now, there may be something provoking you. It's starting to generate this heat in your heart. It doesn't mean you need to let it escalate. Especially, don't let it escalate quickly. Now, your emotions are very important for a variety of reasons. But they're not to control you. That's the difference. Anger can be a strong and proper motivator to action. But the mind and the will must control it to direct it into righteous actions instead of unrighteous reactions. Now, a little later in the sermon, I'm going to point out things you can do in striving to make sure you are righteous in your anger and righteous in your reactions. But first, we need to look at some causes for unrighteous anger because that's usually what's leading us astray. That's what's tripping us up. Now, unrighteous anger is when an emotional response occurs that does not reflect God's perspective or if the actions taken as a result of anger are carried out in ungodliness. Now, the normal, normal moral quality of man is unrighteous on both counts. Our motives are not righteous and our actions are not righteous. What are the causes of that kind of anger? Well, to handle anger properly, you've got to look at the root causes. You've got to deal with what's causing it to, to rise. If you don't, you're only treating symptoms. That's sort of like a guy has a brain tumor and you're giving him you know, aspirin. It may help for a little bit, you know, that it doesn't hurt quite so bad, but the tumor is still there. It's going to cause more pain, and if you don't deal with it, it's going to get worse and it'll kill you. You've got to deal with the real cause, not just the symptoms. And the main cause of unrighteous anger is man's simple bent to selfishness, and that in turn feeds pride and fleshly desires and love of the world. James chapter 4, 1 through 4, explains. James 4, 1 through 4. It says this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are pretty strong words. 
But quarrels, conflicts, fighting, they always have a basis in anger, don't they? Why? Because if you were pleased, you, didn't, you wouldn't even have anything to, to argue about. It's because you're not pleased that you're fighting and quarreling. You have conflict. You see, people want what they want, when they want it, and when they do not get it, they're not happy. The stronger the desire that is not fulfilled, and this word lust in verse 2 in James 4, just means strong desire. It's a strong desire. And the greater the displeasure, which spills out in an expression of actions of anger, is related to how much that desire is important to you. And it will escalate all the way up, as James says, even to murder. People get mad when their goal is blocked. The more important that particular desire is to them, the hotter they get. Now the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger starts right here. Righteous anger has a foundation in desiring what is godly. Its motivations are unselfish. It's fixed on the honor of God and doing his will. Unrighteous anger has its foundation in desiring what is ungodly, and it has sinful and selfish motivations. That's the huge difference. Now, there's going to be differences from person to person, the particular thing that is desired, but usually it's going to be reduced down to fame, fortune, power, and pleasure, or some mixture of those things. As James here, James 4, specifically points out, There is a selfish motivation of personal happiness. There's this desire for fulfillment of personal desires at the expense of others. He points out there's envy, there's hedonism, the seeking after pleasures, fleshly pleasures, and there's worldliness. And because the motives for and what is desired are ungodly, then the anger generated by the lack of the fulfillment of those desires is unrighteous. And all those things are described in Proverbs as foolishness. That's one reason we spent so much time here. Throughout our study in Proverbs, we've seen there's problems caused by man's foolishness, right? And throughout that, we have this wisdom versus foolishness, wisdom versus foolishness. And the various ways in which foolishness expresses itself can and will result in unrighteous anger. Now, it starts from the initial rejection of wisdom And it continues on into greater foolishness. It becomes entrenched in a person's life. It starts with being naive. You're ignorant. You don't know. But you're listening to the unrighteous, and so you don't pay attention to wisdom. That's getting you down on the wrong path to begin with. You came to the fork of the road, and you turned the wrong direction. As you continue down that road, then you become a scoffer, and you dishonor wisdom. You haven't just ignored her. You're dishonoring her. You hate her reproofs. That only makes you more foolish. You continue down that road farther and you become wicked. You insult wisdom. Proverbs give strong warnings get that kind of foolishness, the folly that's there. But unless a person develops a proper fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, they will simply continue down into further and further foolishness. And the more foolish they become, the more things they will be doing, the more reactions they'll have that are unrighteous anger. Now, being a fool or having fools for friends produces unrighteous anger in all sorts of ways. The first is being careful who you have as friends. We pointed this out some time ago. Proverbs 22, 24 and 25 warn, Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. You'll become like your friends. Well, what are their qualities? If it's an angry person, you're going to learn to be angry along with them. I pointed that out a couple weeks too. Why are people angry and they blame their heritage? Well, it's not your bloodline. It's what you learn from your parents and your relatives and your friends. You're just reacting the same way they are. And if you are... Friends with people of low moral character, liars, slanderers, gossips, flatterers. Don't you think you're going to have a lot of trouble? You're going to end up with all sorts of conflict. The same principles apply in the family. Proverbs 14.1 contrasts the wise which build their home 
with the foolish who tear it down with their own hands. And so we spent weeks and weeks in this. But all these things result in unrighteous anger. All the detail, the different types of foolishness that are destructive to your home, getting counsel from the ungodly, your pride, uh, wickedness, stubbornness, self-righteousness, selfishness, contention, nagging, quarreling, uh, being critical, being temperamental, being harsh or hateful or neglectful, being indifferent, manipulative, being unfair and discreet, shameful or unfaithful. All those things are sources of unrighteous anger. And tragically, these things are all too common even in Christian homes. In addition, if parents are not extremely diligent to keep the right goals in mind in pursuing and training their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, they are going to find their children are going to provoke them to all sorts of anger because they're training their children in sin. And in turn, they're going to provoke their children to all sorts of anger. Unrighteous anger is generated by the foolishness that occurs in finances and in government. Envy causes those without to be angry at those who have. Unethical business practices provoke a lot of anger to those who are being exploited. The greedy have a generally displeased state of mind because they just don't have more. You don't have to do anything to them. The diligent and the lazy, they resent each other. Government corruption and justice Government failing to fulfill its purposes, its God-given purposes, are the source of a lot of anger, too, and we've seen that in our own nation. Foolishness of the tongue, it aggravates every type of anger. Now, how should we respond to keep unrighteous anger at a minimum, to keep it at bay, and at the same time learn to pursue righteous actions even when you are angry? What do we do with this? Now, what I've just said is nothing new to us. We all understand it. We live there. Well, the starting point is a lifetime commitment in the pursuit of righteousness. You need to be committed. I am going to deal with the underlying causes of anger. I am going to be committed to dealing with what righteousness is and pursue that. And you need to take this very seriously because if you're not serious about controlling your anger, it will control you. Proverbs 29.22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. And the farther you go into foolishness, the more you become the hot-tempered person. You're abounding in transgressions, and you're stirring it up all over the place. It controls you. Now, this is a difficult battle. A very difficult battle. Why? Because it's both internal and it's external. The internal battle is between your flesh... In the Spirit of God, over in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, the fine Paul says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Why? Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for they're in opposition to one another, so you may not do it the things that you please. There's the battle. Now, Paul's used the word flesh here, not refers just to your physical body. It's all referring to your mind, what makes you up physically total, because what's in your mind is sinful too. It has desires that are sinful. And that's why he states in verses 20 and 21 of Galatians 5 that the deeds of the flesh include these things, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those are several levels of anger and things that result in anger included in that list, all generated by the pursuit of our flesh. Desires of what I want. And yielding to the flesh then means you are going to have a lot of unrighteous anger. The opposite is, as he points out, is if I am walking in the Spirit, if I'm yielding to the Spirit, I won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. I'm going to have different fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, there's love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And that's a whole lot better way to live, isn't it? 
And if it's not for you, it is for the person who's living with you, okay? They would really appreciate if you lived that way. There's also the external battle. Now, that's internal, but coming on top of you is this external battle we're fighting. And this is the pressure of the world that it places upon you to pursue its values instead of what God values. Over in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. Here's what the apostle writes. Do not, it's a command voice, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, logically, it doesn't make a whole lot of pursuit to pursue what only can satisfy for a short time. And yes, that includes the pleasures of the flesh, covetousness, pride. They're temporary. When you compare that to pursuing what lasts for eternity... It's going to satisfy for eternity, but never underestimate the attractive power of these temporal pleasures to man's sinful bent. They're extremely strong. And this world is an external pressure that plays upon those internal sinful desires that we have. Let me give you some examples. You determine, we're getting towards the new year, and usually we determine this, that I'm going to be better about my physical body, I'm going to treat it right, I'm going to eat right, I'll stick to my diet, I will get some exercise, right? Yes! And then what happens? Wow, that's my favorite food. And who put it on the table right in front of me? Why is the television, I wasn't looking for anything, but the commercial is, oh wow, scampi, shrimp scampi, and steak. And all those things. And chocolate oh, for dessert. Okay, and then you're, I'm going to be exercising. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get up in the morning. And the next thing you know is you're plowed under with so much stuff. You've got to get done. And your exercise program goes zing out the window. You don't have time to exercise. Internally, you want to do what's right. Externally, everything says it's against you. You determine, I'm going to be a better steward of my finances. I'm going to get it under control. I am going to attend the Sunday school class and pay close attention to what Jim Pagonis is teaching us so I will have this right. And then every form of advertisement comes flooding in on you for all the things. You don't need it, but oh, you want it. And next thing you know, you're at the mall. Or you're at the computer and clicking buttons. Ah, they deliver it. You're going to you're going to deal with your pride. You recognize it. I need to be a humble man. I need to get a grip on this thing because pride keeps popping out all over the place and I'm going to do this. I will keep my tongue in check. I will look seriously in the mirror. I will compare myself to the word of God and see where I need to change. And lo and behold, your arch rival comes in and comes boasting about all the things he's done. And what are you going to do? Oh, man, that's tough. The world is a pressure upon you to conform you to what it values and to what a God values you. But you see where it's playing? It's against what... It's an internal battle that's externally being pressured. Paul is very clear in Romans 12, too, that you have to resist these pressures of the world. You've got to go the opposite direction. He says, do not be conformed. Don't let it pressure you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So now we come back to volition. You have a choice. What are you going to choose? So the starting point of controlling anger is to be determined, I will pursue righteousness instead of unrighteousness. Now let me give you seven very practical steps that you can take when you feel that emotional heat it's rising up within you the fire is being kindled here's what you need to do 
to resist an ungodly anger, and then press on to walk in godliness. Now, prayer is really the first step, and it's appropriate every single step. We're going to pray. We're going to be begging God for mercy and help with this, okay, all the way along the line. And we put this as a little bookmark. You can keep it wherever you need to keep it. If you want more, we have more. You can post it in your refrigerator, wherever you need to, to remind yourself. The first step, slow down. Slow down. There are many Proverbs addressing the wisdom of being slow to anger and the foolishness responding quickly. Proverbs 14.29, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 15.18, A hot-tempered man, hema, that's a strong word, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. And the word anger there, the last one is that op word, it's just... Don't even let it get to your facial expressions. Be slow to even get there. Second, so one, slow down. Two, related to it, remain calm. Remain calm. First step being applied to very aggravating situations helps you and it helps the one who's provoking you. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. This is an extensive, strong, consuming fire. But a harsh word stirs up anger. It starts the fire rising. Remain calm. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. It's his glory to overlook a transgression. Remain calm. Don't react. Third, get the truth. Get the truth. Make sure you have your facts straight before you speak. Otherwise, it's a folly and shame to you. Proverbs 18.13 tells us that. And if you do respond quickly and you don't have the truth, you're going to aggravate the situation instead of help it. Proverbs 10, 19, 15, 1, 17, 27 all deal with that issue. You can't speak with wisdom and godliness if you don't know what the truth is. In counseling for so many years, I have found that most of the time, interpersonal conflicts are due to miscommunication. And if you can just get them down and get some proper communication going... They can actually work things out. But they're reacting over, but I thought you meant this. (laughs) They didn't. But boys are conflict, so get the truth. Fourth, reflect. Reflect. Now that's taking this quest for the truth to the next level and applying wisdom and understanding to yourself. Now your emotions do not spring up out of a vacuum. All of your emotions arise because of your perception of what is happening, of what is true, and how it relates to your belief system. All your emotions arise from that. Use your anger to expose your perceptions and beliefs. I already pointed out, anger is generally generated out of a desire that's not fulfilled. Some goal is blocked. What is it? In other words, why are you angry? Reflect on that. What specific desire is unfulfilled? What goal is being blocked? That's why you're angry. So reflect. Next, evaluate. Now that you have worked through steps one, two, three, and four, you know why you're angry, you can take that and evaluate it against what the scriptures say. Determine now whether it's a righteous anger or an unrighteous anger. Now, a godly friend or a counselor may need to help you from this step and the next steps to follow. And can you go and get one? Just needs to be a friend who's godly. You know, check me out on this. This is what I'm thinking. Am I, am I right? Am I wrong? What does Scripture say about what, how, what I'm thinking? All right? If it's a righteous anger generated by desiring what is godly and its focus is to honor God and His will being done without selfish motivations, then you can skip to step seven. If it's anything less than that, and usually it's going to be because even we find there's righteous anger, it's mixed in with some other things, then we need to go to step six, and that's repent. Repent. Be humble. Change your mind about those causes of your anger that are unrighteous, and your emotion of anger is going to change in due time as well. Because again, your emotions follow what you believe, what you're thinking, your perceptions. Yes, the other person or the cause of your anger could be worse than what you're thinking or believing, 
but you're not comparing yourself to them. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ regardless of anything that's occurring in the world. That's the goal. Confess, agree with God, anything that is contrary to God's commands, turn away from those things and turn toward godliness. Ask God to create in you a clean heart. David did in Psalm 51.10. Pursue being transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So repent. Seventh, respond. Now that you know the truth, you reflect on the cause of your anger, you've evaluated that cause of anger against any sinful thought, belief, and repented from it, now you can determine what is the right response, what is a righteous action that should take place instead of an ungodly one. Now the ultimate goal is to reflect Jesus Christ living in you. And so your specific response is going to be as varied as his was. And he was always glorifying God in his responses, and he demonstrated the practical wisdom we've been finding in Proverbs throughout the last year. That's what has to be applied. That is what guides your own response. Be humble, pursue godliness, seek to honor God, and walk in the practical wisdom we've been seeing throughout our study of Proverbs. Do what is right, leave the results in God's hands. That's the final. Psalm 37, 7 through 9. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. This is the very starting point of anger. Forsake wrath. That's that intense, consuming, burning fire of anger. Do not fret, which is the ultimate, I'm about to have my wrath poured out, anger. It leads only to evil doing. Evil doers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. I can leave it in the Lord's hands, can't I? 